Body, Mind, Spirit Radio, offering quality live programming with holistic, spiritual, psychic, and metaphysical hosts. Welcome to Aetherius Radio Live, the hour of truth with Richard Lawrence and Chrissy Blaze. A very warm welcome to our regular listeners and those who are new to A Serious Radio Live, brought to you on Mind, Body, Spirit Radio every third Tuesday monthly at 1pm Eastern Time, 6pm UK Time and 10am Pacific Time. A Serious Radio Live invites you to discover the cosmic message for this age revealed through legendary master of yoga and world-renowned medium Dr. George King between 1954 and 1997. As always, be prepared for another amazing show covering fascinating topics such as karma, UFOs, the Mother Earth, the New World, the Next Master, life on other planets and much, much more. We have had to rearrange today's show on the Sirius Radio Live at short notice, as unfortunately, Quizzy Blaze has been hit by a very bad cold and cannot be with us today. Our healing prayers and love for your speedy recovery, Chrissy. Today, we will be covering a subject that we had planned to do in a couple of months. However, it turns out to be very appropriate now, because this month, September, marks 40 years that Richard Lawrence has been Executive Secretary for Europe, which includes Africa and parts of Asia. This is a unique record for which Richard was honoured when he received an award at the Sirius Temple in London last Sunday. So, Richard will be put under the spotlight again by our guest interviewer, Darren Ball, as we are sure you will be very interested to know how the Sirius Society has developed over those years. So, without further ado, it is my great pleasure to hand over to Darren. Thank you, Nikki. And hi, and hi, Richard. Hi, Darren, and hi to all our listeners, and we wish Chrissy a very speedy recovery. Indeed. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me um, in her absence. And first of all, congratulations, uh, Richard, for 40 years this month as Executive Secretary. Um, it's certainly an inspiration to me, yeah. uh, a great inspiration, and I'm sure to many of our listeners as well, because you've done something unique, which is to devote yourself to your master and his mission in this role for 40 years. And, um, um, well, thank you for that. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, it's still work in progress, but thank you very much <laughs> indeed, Darren. Well, I think on that point, um, we have a really good show in store for Theorist Radio Live listeners today. And today's interview is really going to be about some of the lessons in discipleship that I think we can learn from the experiences you've had in your position running the headquarters here in London, at times even in L.A. on behalf of Dr. King. And specifically, what we can learn from your journey going from uh, devotee to disciple of Dr. King, if I put it that way, i.e. someone who learned what their master needed and therefore what you could do to serve him. And, you know, Nikki just mentioned that, that presentation a couple of minutes ago. And, you know, um, you know, what really stuck with me on Sunday um, when you were presented with that, Richard, was mm-hmm. 
um, you said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, is that we might not all be executive secretary, but the key is that we are doing what we are meant to be doing, whatever that role is. And, and what I took away from that was, yes, we can all ask ourselves, what, what can I do to serve my master? I think that's something that people can keep in mind during the show, and it's something that I've had on my mind since, uh, since Sunday as well. Yes. Um, I, I Actually, Darren, you know, that's something I kind of always believed. And, and when I first mm. came into the society, it never crossed my mind that I would uh, be the European Accorded Secretary or, or never mind sort of become close to the master as I did, although that the latter of those two was my goal. But I always thought, well, you mm. know, it doesn't really matter what position you hold as long as you're doing the position you're meant to hold. Uh, it right. just so happens the master, in my case, wanted me. I could help him, it turned out, by taking on various positions and responsibilities, which very, very early on he started to put my way. As a matter of fact, all the positions I hold to this day were given to me by him. And that was my way of, if you like, serving him and being his, his disciple, as you put it, which I was privileged to be and later very close friend. Um, and the two kind of overlap those things, disciple and friend, it's certainly in my case. Right. But um, it doesn't matter if you're a mechanic, if you're if you're an administrator, if you're a digital-minded person, if you're doing another role, a more physical role, or, or, or a role serving customers for the Ethereum Society, whatever it is, as long as that's where you're meant to be, that's all that matters. Um, yeah, I, I do believe that, indeed. Well, I think that that's that's a theme. I think, as you say, something that we can all think about, and that's why I think this this interview today is is so relevant to us all who are all on this on this journey of our own from devotee to disciple of Dr. King and asking ourselves that question. So I thought what I could do it might be interesting is re rewind back a few years from your appointment in 1979 to your relationship mm. with the master in the very beginning, and and how you might describe your attitude to him at that time. When, when you first came across the society? You know, I, I was very much, as there may be other people who will empathize with this, but I was very much of the autobiography of a yogi school, uh, as per Yogananda, the great yeah. Paramansa Yogananda, and of, um, you know, stories about the great Miller Repa, the Tibetan yogi, and his, his teacher or master, Marpa, the translator. And I used to, right. you know, really love those stories, even Ananda with the Lord Buddha and, uh, you know, these great stories of people who've dedicated themselves to Master. So what I, what I remember when I first came in along with John Holder up at Hull University and then coming down to London, and I was fortunate my parents lived near London so I could come in a lot and I got to know the Master immediately, really. I say got to know him. I don't mean at a very personal level, but I could run errands for him and I was sort of around and right. probably in his way a bit too much. But I <laughs> used to look at people who were sort of in his company and I thought that's where I want to be. I never sort of thought I'd like to be running this place or doing you know, but I would, did want to get as close to him as I could. And um, I mm. went over, as soon as I became a staff member, which was in 1975, it so happened people were going to L.A., to see whether they could become what we now call task force members. It was a different scheme in those days. And for yeah. some reason, I, even though I was only 22, I, I very early on, he put me into that position of, of running the SER and taking the oath at the time. 
and I sort of made it clear that I would have moved to Los Angeles very happily if I could. And I used to look at people who were close to him, such as the late Richard Casada and others. And I thought I'd love to be in that role if I ever could in some way. But soon, I mean, I remember the following year, 1976, again, I'd be 23, he put me on the London Committee. Uh, I don't know that any others on the committee who was another generation from me in those days were even Mm. asked. But um, maybe I think Ray Nielsen certainly was. I don't know about the others. I don't know that they all even were delighted that I was on it. But it became clear. I remember the interview, though. He called me in to see him. He was was in the dining room here, and he said, uh, are you a worry guts? That was, and I said, well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes, I am, sir. And he said, right, you're on my committee. That was the end of the interview. And yeah. So I could see yeah. the way it was going. Um, and then 1977 was a pivotal year, and he started to put me in these positions, even though at that stage I wasn't what I'd call a close friend of his. I was around him a lot and in his company a lot, but I haven't, what you might say, sort of broken through the barrier of, uh, on a, at a personal level of uh, mm. being, uh, you know, the friend and 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 close, very close person. At a, if you like to use the word emotional level, if that's the right word, I'm not sure. Yeah, it I was for me. I'm not sure it was for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting you talk about here is that kind of give people some of the context of this time, which is I think as you've said to me, yeah. the master was entering the third phase of his mission. And you know, therefore, there was sort of a, cha- a change in terms of what was needed from those around him, and you yes. know, people who may regard themselves just as devotees. You know, there was something more that he needed if if you were going to serve him. Do you do you want to talk a little bit about that third phase? And that, yes, the there was a change at that time. Yes, yes, thank you. I mean, uh, there was there's a paragraph in the new biography actually, which, if I may, I'll read out because it describes the era Please we're do. talking about, which was the 1970s. And this is the paragraph. It's uh, written by Brian Kniep and myself, of course. Uh, well, I, I, was, I actually wrote this paragraph. I wrote a lot of the book, but we worked on it together. But this is the paragraph in question. For the Aetherius Society, it meant an increased interest in our teachings, especially from the young. It was far from overwhelming, but it did lead to dozens of new younger members joining the society in the 1970s, some of whom would become totally dedicated to its cause, including the authors. This intake changed the mood music at society activities from waltz time to disco beat, although as ever, (laughs) the tempo was ultimately set by Dr. King himself. And I I realise, talking to you, Darren, that even disco beat is passe and for the old now. But uh, it sort of illustrates the change that that was going on then. But looking at it from the point of view of the master, which is really the only point of view that matters, I think, Dr. King, it was, Mm. I think, probably uh, certainly difficult for him uh, that although it was great, he had young people coming in who wanted to, 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 to dedicate themselves to helping him and be that in a way was good. It, they were people who weren't of his generation, uh, even, even talking in terrestrial terms. So no longer were they mm-hmm. people who'd even lived during the war years. I mean, even even someone like, say, Ray Nielsen, who was very close to him at that mm-hmm. time and remained actually remained close to him later on. 
but he had at least be, you know lived during the war even as a child i believe and and so there was lots of references from his life that he could share here he had another generation who'd sort of had their formative teenage years in the 1960s a very radical era he wasn't even right. in britain then he was so it was a an adjustment i think that must have been quite difficult from his point of view and then in, in 1977 came this seminal transmission that's actually published in the biography from the Master Etherius in September. Mm. Um, and this was introducing his third phase, as you rightly say, and it spelt out uh, the, the need for change. And as usual, the Master Etherius put in it in a very subtle way. Uh, but he basically was saying that the Master Theorist was going to have to hand over more and more of his responsibilities to others to take to take over more from him so that he could focus on higher things. And right. I remember the one phrase, I think I've got it right, was something like, act upon the inference in, of this, of this transmission. That was mm. the, the Master Theorist to the staff, I believe, at that time. And the I inference see. would be, as far as I'm concerned, although I now, of course, got to know him much better than I did then, that we were to, to, to sort of rise this occasion and not just leave it to the master to tell us. I think that'd be one right. of the inferences. And also, perhaps if one went deeper, to realize this was going to be psychologically difficult for Dr. King because he was absolutely trained in another place at another time to take on everything upon himself. And although right. he would delegate, he wouldn't detach completely. And he'd stay on projects, even small ones, and remember them. He had the, this brilliant memory, of course. And um, he didn't just say, okay, here you are, you do that, and off you go. And let, you know, that just was not temperament. Uh, he was yeah. far too compassionate, really, just to do that for the world. And so mm. he, so the inference, I think, was there. And then following that transmission, I think it was straight after it, came one from St. Guling, who spelt it out more yeah. and actually even it sort of said, you know, it's time to take over the running of, of the Ethereum Society. I think, I think I can probably find it here. It's also in the – here we are in the Speaking biography. Speaking to the staff, you mean? And this, again, is to the staff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I strongly advise you to come together quite soon and as many times as necessary to bring about changes. I'm just reading out little bits of it. I f this is a key sentence. I feel sure that some of you have the right love for your leader, the right interest in the Ethereum Society as a whole, to step now boldly into the limelight and take over the running of this organization. Yes. You know, and yeah. that was a very clear statement from one of the most senior and ancient masters in the Great White Brotherhood. And, you know, that was appeared by then, 1977. Um, I was on the committee. Others were too and in London. And there were others of our generation. And um, I felt, you know, this is, this is a message to people like us maybe to come in and start yeah. taking over things, take on things. But it, was, it wasn't easy yeah, to do. Yeah. I think it really gives a sense of the time. It seems to me that saying to really love our masters to help them in their mission, I, I, like no longer the devotion in the theoretical way, but giving them the help that they need it. Um, yeah. Anyone can be a follower, but you know, when we think about the real measure of service, it's like what you've said, like take, stepping into the line, like taking responsibility on ourselves. 
um, to be someone mm-hmm. who's ready to bear some of their burden, even in a small way, in order to help them in their mission. I think. Uh, I'd like to come yeah. back to that theme of love a little bit later on. I think it's it's, it's a really mm-hmm. key one, and you have a lot there that we can that we can take. Yeah. Um, I yeah, and just before you do, I just okay. Sorry, all I was going to say is that I think it's significant that that's the first qualification that Saint Guling identified. You know, the right totally. love for your yeah. leader, not 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 your administrative skills as the first <laughs> thing, but your right love for your Completely. leader. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Completely. I, I think it brings me back to the point that I wanted to say too, which is that that love um i mean there's there's a there's a bravery factor in 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 taking a role like this and in taking any responsibility um mm-hmm. i think that's that's an important thing to recognize that you said to me in the past you know didn't you know that feeling that you had in you know at the point of which you were being appointed of you know can i really do this you know absolutely yeah am i worthy to do this i mean do you want to talk a little bit about that as well i think it's something important for people to hear yeah I mean, I think you know what sort of happened uh, without naming any names or, or any or casting any aspersions. But you know, the previous generation, certainly in in London, um, no one had lasted what I would call that long. Maybe <laughs> seemed long in this particular role, and 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 some of the very mm. senior roles. But we're talking about secretary, as it happened. So you'd had, well, we the, I think the first one was Grace Abercrombie, and you'd had one or two others. I won't go into their names. They they they'd done maybe five years, six years, and so one of the daunting things, you know, it was a strange combination of being excited by the the opportunity. And at the same time, very mm. daunted in, in one moment, if you know what I mean. And also, yeah. at that point, as I've mentioned, not yet being at a very close personal level with Dr. King, even though I obviously was with him a lot and doing a lot for him. Mm. And I'd had mm. a lot of training from him, which has um, some interesting cases. So I, they, they had basically left this position. And he looked around, and I remember his words, well, it'll have to be Lawrence. That was it, you know, and I was 25. And um, it, you know, I also, uh, his wife, who, who was a great, became a great friend of mine. She was already a friend, actually, but a great one later mm. on. But she was extremely strict, could be very difficult to uh, work with, under, at times, yeah. um, and she was also at that stage involved in running the European headquarters from America, and yeah. um, that that she ceased. That started to cease in the early 1980s, and then she took less of a role in it after that. But at that okay. stage, so a lot of instructions coming through, and um, and it was trying to get things right. I mean, I'll give you one illustration. Uh, when I first became, so in, in, it was in actually 1979 in April that I became temporary secretary. Uh, it was right. temporary okay. because he wanted to wait till he came over to Britain to make it permanent. And he made it permanent mm-hmm. at an AGM, an annual general meeting. He wasn't really waiting for the annual general meeting but because he could have done it without one or appointments were often made without any such meeting but he decided to yeah. do it that way because you know certain people had left and he wanted to you know get the te- the temperature if you like of the membership as well as well as the staff mm-hmm. and also see how i performed i think around him in the role and so it became definite in September of that year and John Holder was also the organizer at that time we had an organizer then that position didn't last that long but um, so the Mm -hmm. two of us were very much in in the hot seat 
Um, and as far as I was concerned in April, I remember, and I lived at Ethereum's house, lying on my back. Um, and in fact, somebody sent me a very nice congratulations, somebody from America um, the other day. And I said, well, yes, it has been a great oh, yeah. honor, but a very, very stressful one. It's been a stressful <laughs> honor, yeah. is how I'd summarize yeah. it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, it's good. I think um, this starts to bring us into the point where... Um, you know, the master is starting to put you in a role where you needed to start taking that responsibility. And um, yeah. I thought you, it might be it might be nice to show the listeners that phone call you took about the charity commission uh, when the master phone. Oh yes, you. that's right. Yeah, that's uh, so. I just I just become uh, secretary, and um, he phoned me up, and I'm just trying to. To be honest, there was an awful lot of reorganisation required. There's lots of <laughs> it was a there's lots of sort of unfinished jobs and things to look into and I had to find out a lot of things about about the society of course uh, I'm, I'd been the press officer for some while but suddenly then I, I was the secretary and as I say John and I were working together and others too it wasn't just us either but um, I did get this call from Dr King where th this illustrates what how it was going because just before I do that I mean I'd said I'd wanted to go to America and be as close to him as I could and I and I did want that but he made it clear to me that the best way I could help him was to take on this mm. role and to take on ro other right. roles in running the society for him if you like in the in the UK I say for him he was still very hands-on despite the transmission from the master of theorists very hands-on himself in in many aspects so it wasn't like it was here you are let get going so I was reporting to him and he called up he said how's it going in terms of the Ethereum Society is seeking charity, charitable status, because as you know, we yeah. have non-profit status in, in did then in California, but we we've never become a charity here, which I could certainly explain. It's quite it might be boring for some people, but anyway, yeah, that was his question, and so I, mm -hmm. I looked up some files. I said I don't know. I had to be honest, which is not an answer he ever liked. But often it was quicker mm. than, you, you know, you, you've got to be honest. So, and I really didn't know. So I went and looked in some files and I found the correspondence and I found the last letter on this. And it was in 1963 to, I think the then secretary was Keith, uh, had come in. So I told him, I ring, phoned him back and told him. He said, well, have you replied to it? I said, well, no. He said, well, you should have done. And I thought, I don't, I'd just become secretary. So I did actually say to him, well, I was only 10 then, sir. <laughs> but that didn't go yeah. down very well. So what, it was still my responsibility as far as he was concerned. And so I, I sort of right. learned quickly that his, to keep his life simple, and he did spell this out for me late. He said, I'm the general, you're the colonel. Uh, I'm going to blame you for everything that isn't done, but who, no matter who it's yeah. by. And then you can go, you know, deal with that. And so that kept his life simple, and I sort of started to feel responsible from then on and started to get, as it went, feel I had to be on top of absolutely everything um, mm -hmm. in order to sort of report to him. Yeah, as in that's the way he wanted you to help him in his mission, as they put it. Yeah, and way. it's really the way he was. I mean, he had he was aware of everything that was going on and... Uh, you know, and far, far more, of course, than what was going on in the Ethereum society. So there were no excuses at all. But yes, yeah. it's, I mean, I remember another case was some time later when a, a close worker, as we call them, somebody who was working, helping us, was in the kitchen. 
and he was in the dining room at Ethereum's house, and it so happens he was taking, and I, he hadn't said anything, but he was in communication. He had a telepathic communication. And this mm-hmm. person in the, in the kitchen, uh, washing up or whatever, was, was making a lot of noise. And this disturbed him. And he told me off uh, in front of the entire... I was upstairs. I was doing another job somewhere else in the building. But didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, this was my fault. It wasn't the close worker's fault. Uh, I, and it wasn't the fact that I hadn't been told. I should know. I should find out. And so on. So that's the sort of way, and I'm not saying I'm the only one he trained like that, but certainly that's the way mm. he trained me. Uh, you know, he didn't, you can't get told everything. Um, I do remember yeah. an instruction that, that the Lord Babaji, and it's very rare for him to give uh, instruction, but he gave a piece of advice to the staff some years later, which was take more initiative, don't wait to be asked. And mm-hmm. that's from the Lord Babaji. Yeah. And that, that was the spirit from the master all the time. I mean, you, you didn't, your ignorance is no excuse at all if you, you should find out, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic training, isn't it? It really helps to start mm. to illustrate like what spirituality really means because a lot of people think oh, it's about peace and complete detachment and you know even from the suffering of humanity i think the master and the cosmic master put that thought right but you know it's it's like actually in this case you were asked <laughs> that's why you passed your interview probably are you a worry gut so well um, he no, he also yeah. knocked the roma- i mean i had a lot of romanticism in me about yogi master okay. relationships and I, I you know especially from some of the things i've read and i i remember i mean I, in 1977 actually when I was a committee member and resident at Ethereum's house and still working with him and around him a lot. Uh, but I did, I, I, in 1980, I can almost date the day and the place, which was actually Torquay, when I was with him and, yeah. and his wife and Ray Nielsen, where I sort of broke through the level, if you like, of friendship and it went to something else. But up to then, okay. yes, it was friendly. And, and, and probably to many people, that would be, you know, very, very, very close. But it was nothing like what came later for me. That's all, that's all I can really say. But I do remember I wrote him a letter when he was in America in 1977, which was extremely idealistic and well-intended and devotional. And, you, you know, I don't mind how you treat me. You can tell me off. You can this. You can do the other. And it was all that sort mm. of thing, whatever's best for you. And I wrote this letter. And he came over in that, that summer and really put me through my paces. I mean, he would call everyone into a meeting and then send me away for no apparent reason they were not you you know and this was odd because i was on the committee most Uh people weren't and this went on and i didn't you know i sort of forgot about my letter i just it seemed it was upsetting to me more than it should have been probably when he left and went back to um america i had the job of clearing his desk and i cleared the desk and i i found in the bottom drawer my letter, nothing else, just this letter I'd sent him, uh, which he'd obviously brought God. over from America. Yeah. And yeah. He'd, he'd taken me at my word and tested me at my word. And I thought, goodness yeah. me. And um, I say it wasn't long after that, though, that uh, I was taking on this role. 18 months later, I was a secretary. No, I think that that's really illustrative, isn't it? Of like, it's not about the theoretical devotion; it's about what you're really going to do. I mean, are you going to stand behind behind this? Mm. Um, I, I think it's fascinating, especially for someone for me to hear that, you know, that he knocked that sentimentality or the romanticism out of you to teach you about what he needed, for how he needed yeah. you to serve him. Yeah, I mean, him he took me out of. 
when I when he knew I was kind of upset, which I shouldn't have been. It's a weakness, I think, really. But it sort of hurt me, if that's the word. Probably is the wrong word. But you know, I he took me out for a walk actually with Ray, even in the midst of it all. He, I went, I th- or it might have been the following years. So it might have been 1978, but it was around that period before I became secretary. Yeah. He took. I went out for a walk with him and Ray. I think on Putney Common or by Putney Towpath. Those were his regular walks. And he yeah. and he said, you know. The day, actually, he started off by saying, you know, and I hadn't mentioned it at all. He said, I've read uh, Autobiography of a Yogi by Yogananda. And he said, um, in some ways, I think it's a wonderful book. And in other ways, it's far too sentimental for me. That, that was how he mm. put it. And, and I say that with all due respect to Yogananda, who he was a great admirer of. But that's, that was his take on it. He was at another level, as I'm sure Yogananda would be the first to acknowledge and he mm. said, don't hang on my shirt tails. Um, and mm. we were walking along. He said, the day I stopped shouting at you, and I put shouting in inverted commas because, it, you know, he did raise his voice, but he, he meant telling me off and so on. The day I stopped right. shouting at you is the day to start worrying because that's the day I won't care about you anymore. It, oh, it, it, this, gosh, and it's, yeah. it's a very compassionate thing. And he turned around mm. and he said, you know, there's nothing I can do that you can't do. And to be honest mm. with you, when he said that, I, I was thinking, well, I can't do what you do. <laughs> so, and he <laughs> said it again. He said, and I really believe that and pointed at me, which I think yeah. illustrates many things. I mean, it also illustrates his tremendous trust and confidence that he had in, in, in his people and people around him. Um, but also it was a very compassionate thing that he did there for me. Completely. Just before we, we go any further, I thought I'd hand over to Nikki for our, our break. Shall we yes. do that? Let's okay. do that. Over to you, Nick. Well, thank you both so much for a truly fascinating first half of the show. You are listening to A Serious Radio Live with host Richard Lawrence, answering questions posed by Darren Ball, giving us all an insight into the 40 years Richard has been Executive Secretary for Europe. As always, the Ethereum Society is extremely busy, so please bear with me on these announcements. And literally hot off the press, so to speak, tomorrow, Wednesday, September the 18th, at 6.30 p.m. BST, 1.30 Eastern Time, and 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, Richard will be on the X-Zone Radio TV show with Rob McConnell. So please do visit richardlawrence.co.uk for the link to listen to this show live tomorrow. Saturday, September the 28th, there will be the 11th Annual World Peace Pilgrimage in cooperation with other faiths to Mount Baldy in California. 12 Midnight GMT, October 9th, sees the last hour of the third spiritual push for 2019. You are, as always, warmly invited to attend London, Los Angeles and Michigan for any one of our centres where services will be held to mark this potent time when the giant spacecraft we know as a third satellite leaves orbit of Earth having flooded our world with much-needed spiritual energy since September the 3rd. For details of activities held at the Michigan branch, please visit ethereus.mi.org. In London, we have... 
Sunday, September 29th, a seminar with Mervyn Smith entitled Wisdom for Mother Planets. Tuesday, October 8th, a King Yoga Experience evening with Vivian Gibson on meditation. Now, here's something many will be very pleased to hear, that the American headquarters has organized the following centenary events in honor of Dr. Dr. King. These are Saturday, October 12th, the George King biography launch at the American headquarters, attended by the authors Richard Lawrence and Brian Kniep. Each will give a special presentation, followed by the signing of books, and afterwards there will be a light buffet meal. This launch will start with a tour of Dr. King's residence in Hollywood at 2.30 p.m. Sunday, October 13th, there will be a tour of Dr. King's residence in Santa Barbara and the Holy Beach. Ah, more details for that. Um, do please visit theorist.org and also please, the deadline for booking a place on this fascinating tour is September 21st, so do get your bookings in. As always, you're all very welcome to join us every Saturday and Sunday in the live online 12 Blessings services. And to find out more, please visit 12blessings.org. That's 12 in digits. For full details of all activities mentioned in this show, please visit Ethereus.org. The next Ethereus Radio Live is on October the 15th, when Chrissy Blaze will be discussing with Brian Kniep behind the scenes with the biography the website. Please feel free to visit this beautiful new site, drgeorgeking.org. So that's it for now, and I'm very pleased to return you to Darren. Thanks very much, Nikki. I thought I thought we'd just carry on a little bit of that theme, Richard, which is um, I wondered. Uh, we talked a little bit about this before, but what do you think it meant to Dr. King to be for you to be someone who was a, a follower of his versus someone who was actively helping him, someone who was doing more. For yes, him. I, he talked about a toast one time. Yes, uh, this was some time later, I must say, but it did epitomize really for me uh, in one simple experience, the journey that yeah. you talked about that certainly that I and, and I'm sure others took. And I was sitting and I think it would be, it was just after uh, there was a fire. So I don't know whether it was 1990 or 91, so around that sort of time. Uh, in yeah. uh, Santa Bar in, in Los Angeles, I'm sorry, because he was in he was staying temporarily. I remember in the third bungalow at the American headquarters uh, because of that fire mm. in his own uh, property, and the, we were sitting there just the three of us uh, after watching a television program together, and we had drinks. I think I had a glass of brandy maybe or something, and I thought I'll I'll t I'll raise it in a toast to him, and I raised the glass and I said. It is a privilege to call myself your follower, Master. I thought that was a great thing, you know, and I was raising my glass mm. to, to, to toast him. And he was really annoyed, possibly upset. And he, after the toast, he said, don't you ever call yourself my follower again. You are not my follower. You are my bishop and my friend. And I, I sort of realized something that I should have known by then and which wasn't new to me, but it was epitomized, I think, in that little example, that he didn't yeah. need me to be a follower. That's no good to him. It might be nice for me. This is where I parted company yeah. with some of these wonderful tales of 
collect, you know, students and chalers and so on. And you just follow your yeah. master, do what they say, bow, serve them, and yeah, you know, this isn't what he wanted. And uh, and I knew that, but it was really clear in that one little example. He needed something else from me, um, yeah. and I should have known because some years earlier, it'd be 1986, when the task force was established, a special mission mm-hmm. task force, and names were given. Uh, to central control of the people who were on the task force and sometimes he would receive back from central control a piece of advice or or a statement about the person and in my case I did I was fortunate enough to get some advice which uh, it was possibly slightly difficult maybe for, for Dr King to give me I don't know but he said I've been told I've been asked to pass this on to you and the advice was this because of your position, you have got to tell your master the complete truth, whether he wants to hear it or not, about things. Mm. And yeah. I realized then, and I, I thought, okay, uh, because, you know, there's a tendency to sort of try and keep things nice and happy and out of love. I, mm-hmm. I sort of the journey mm-hmm. to me, Darren, is you, you become a follower. And the next stage is love. Yeah. And then the next stage, you say, I want to help my master. You know, I want to follow my master. I want to love my master. You've got to do that. And then you go to the next stage, which I was, I want to help my master. Funnily enough, it just occurred to me, they're like the thir- first three freedoms, as a matter of fact. You need some bravery yeah, to become a follower. Then you need the love, and then you have the service. So I hadn't thought of that before. But you, um, those are the stages you, you go through. And yeah, yeah. No, I think I think this brings up a great a great segue into, um, you know, being in this position. I mean, taking taking responsibility and being asked to do, frankly, was quite difficult to do. I mean, to to be in that position where you have to tell him the truth, um, and to speak to him about things that no one else was probably willing to speak to him about, and you know, it comes in your position. Yeah, upon it was down your to me. We 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 had a an what well, kind of an oath system where anything serious had to be reported to him if it affected the Ethereum society but there was a kind of a buffer system where and i was one of those who had the the job of telling him things and uh, but i sort of as the years went on i thought well i'm i sort of made a decision to become his candid friend if you like now don't get me wrong okay. i didn't always get it right uh, I must say that. And I certainly didn't always do it as well as I should have done it. But I did sell him various things. And and um, what I found, though, is that he... Because there are many ways of, of being a devoted student. And I, I wouldn't criticize someone else. Mm. Because also, in the old sort of training, which I referred to earlier, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a teaching that if a, if a guru, if your guru says black is white, then it's white which I understand mm. that. That kind of teaching was quite, uh, I was at home with from the beginning because I, un, you know, it's yeah. understandable that the guru has a higher reality of black and white than you do. And therefore, the, it, it's, a, it's a sort of a great profound realization. And it doesn't mm. apply to, you know, uh, details like, you know, which way, which is third street on the right. I mean, you can't do it with that. But with higher things, certainly. Um, he might know mm. more. Or he might have a very, very good reason for telling you it's white when it seems to you to be black. And that I could, that was quite an easy thing to live with. But then, from me anyway, I had to sort of sometimes tell him things and sometimes disagree with him. I remember 
um, he used to come over to England, and there was a couple of things yeah. that he would tell me off for. One is the fact that the staff, when he used to come over here, weren't, um, and some of the close workers too, weren't sort of familiar with his style. I mean, he had a style of, of uh, sort of methodology, which you might say is like a, uh, you know, a, a, gen- a general whose bark is worse than his yeah. bite. And he, he you know, really, okay. if you actually tune into the vibration, it was pure love. But certainly, mm. you know, he would be strict and he would be no nonsense. And, uh, you know, you, when he meant, wanted something done, he wanted it done now and etc. And people mm-hmm. weren't, you know, as far as he was concerned, used to that when he'd come over here. So he instructed me in the 1980s to be much stricter. Told me I was far too weak. And he, in no uncertain terms, stronger words than that. And I had to toughen yeah, okay. up and toughen up other people. I don't know whether it was always understood by those other people. And to be honest, at that point, I wasn't thinking about them. I was thinking about him and what worked for him. Mm. And he'd come over right, and, and yeah. I remember he came over in 1985 and he did say that he found things a lot better by then. But he said to me, when I next come over... He said, when I come over to the England, you you sort of take a role, uh, more of a background role. You leave it to, you, to me. And you, you what I want you to do next time is behave exactly as you'd behave if I'm not there. Mm-hmm. So next time he came, which turned out to be his last tour was 1986, and I started doing that. Well, you know, inevitably, there's going to be things where, we're, you know, we there are differences of view about, little things like what cars should go where and who'd be driving them and what and i in the you know before i'd have just deferred to him and left it almost left it to him uh and i stopped mm-hmm. doing that so well no, i think so and so should go so occasionally we'd have disagreements this was quite a unusual and not something that he'd tolerate from many people at all and i wasn't sure how mm. it was really going down with him um, until I heard him talking at a chivalric banquet to someone he'd never met before, and the person asked oh, him yeah. how he felt, you know, about his organisation, how it was running in England, and he, he didn't. I mean, I was just he, my ears were pricking up from the other side of the table, but I'm sure. he said, uh, I'm, <laughs> "I'm very happy with it. It's going very well." So I thought, "Oh, okay," because he, he hadn't said that in those words to me, and I thought, well, "Okay, mm. this is helping him then. Then okay, then." Oh, that's what I must do. And I, and I started doing it later in, in, in when he had to, had to spend a lot of time in Santa Barbara. He'd sometimes put me in charge of the American headquarters as well if I was in Los Angeles and I would be visiting him in Santa Barbara. And uh, that's the kind of tack I took. As, as I said, I'm not sure how it went down with everybody else. But for him, mm-hmm. uh, it, it seemed helpful. And as I say, that was at that stage what I was focused on. No, I think that's a, that's a very interesting takeaway for me, certainly, and I think for others, that you know, all of these things that you were doing, going back to that quote by St. Galing, were really because of your love for the Master and your interest in the Ethereum Society as a whole and what's best for the society. Um, yeah, yeah and, I, I feel I must say one thing, though. Dan, I must push this. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I want to make it absolutely clear for it. that I wasn't as good as I should have been. Uh, I don't want to sort of run away like this is a self-congratulatory hour or anything like that because I should have been much more unconditional than I was. Some people think, you know, what you did is great and that's their judgment. But in terms of what I should have been, I should have been much better and I should have been less conditional. Uh, I mean, I, I would get calls, you know, to go over to America less than less than 24 hours notice quite often. 
uh, sometimes a bit yeah. longer. And I should, you know, I always went, don't get me wrong, but I didn't always go with exactly the spirit I should have gone with. I, I could list, as a matter of fact, before writing the biography, and I told Brian Kniep this, I went through, and I had an illness at the time, so I had time to reflect, and I went through a period of really looking at my failings in respect to the to the master, what I, I call him, yeah, and how okay. I could have done this and I could have done that. And I think it released, for me anyway, a lot of things, and I had to do it. And I don't think I could have written the book in the way that I did, or, or the, the amount that I did write. I was the lead writer, I wasn't the only writer. But I don't think I could have done mm. that in the way that it was written. A book biography could have been written, but not that one, if I hadn't been through that right. like cleansing period and really examined myself. So I don't want anyone to run away with the idea, I think I did everything just so. Uh, I certainly could have done things better. But anyway, it did keep me in position. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. It's it's uh, probably an important part of the journey, and one that that any anyone who feels any any sense of guilt for what they could have done during that period when he was here and has asked himself, "Oh, what could I have done to serve my master?" Probably an important thing to to learn to take from that. It's something that people can benefit from. Um, there's, a, I think, a segue into another uh, aspect of of your experience here is that um, going back to the way that he would, that you were sort of accustoming people to his style that he wanted, mm-hmm. you, you know, like, yes. um, was you've talked to me in the past about um, this Agni Yoga, um, which I think is a All fascinating right. aspect of Dr. King's teaching. I think one that probably few people outside the close staff know about. I wonder if you could tell a bit more about what this is and how he would kind of manifest this in his style, yes. I mean, with you and with, and with others that are around. Yeah. Yes. I'll give my take on it. I don't know whether everyone would agree with me, but this is how I would see it. Agni Yoga, just so mm. people understand it, is the yoga of fire. And it was very often applied in certain ashrams, not always by the guru, actually. It could be by senior disciples with new novitiates or, or people coming in. Uh, and it was a psychological yoga as as perceived and one of the great examples would be uh, Marpa the translator with his student Milarepa the Tibetan yogi who attained samadhi in one life became an adept in one life uh, but was put Mm. through a really strict regime um, apparently unfair regime by his master Uh, it's quite a story so that I was very familiar with now with Dr. King, he would tell people off. I myself don't believe it was always Agni Yoga per se, in that some, I, in, in, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I don't think, because Agni Yoga has got to be done extremely carefully uh, and in the mm. psychological interests of the student. And, right. you know, they, they, the, the person delivering Agni Yogi has to know how much that student can take. Because what you're doing, you're exposing their weaknesses, you're showing up their shortcomings. And if they recognize this, it'll burn up. If we recognize our weaknesses, but this is being instilled by another person, you burn up your lower self and you transmute it in the fire and you move on free of I it. See. That's the idea of it. It's I a see. fast but difficult form of yoga can be... I mean, even if you do it alone and you realize your weaknesses, it can almost physically hurt. But then you can free yourself mm. from it if you recognize them honestly. And then you don't hang on to them. You detach. Now, in the case of Dr. King, though, I don't think he was always doing that. I don't think every time he told somebody off, it was a deliberate cult of, you know, psychological 
at Agni Yoga. I think sometimes it would be. I think also if, if he was aware of his students and if they needed something, I gave an example where he took me for a walk and helped me there, he would do that. Yeah. But sometimes mm. it was just his way. He was dealing, he was under psych, I mean, only I've got to look at the fourth blessing. He was under terrible psychological stress, trauma. He was bearing the world on his shoulders. He was surrounded by people who weren't, none of us were adepts. I mean, the job I had, I, I, again, I knew this from the beginning. I did recognize this. It's really a job for an adept, which I wasn't, and I'm still not. And so there's going to mm. be these pressures. And yet he was this very, very yeah. advanced, even by the standards of other avatars he was advanced, because he'd done so much right. more on the inner planes than some of them had done in that life, apart from anything else, as well as being who right. he was. So he had these frustrations, and so he would sometimes let them out on his students, if let them out is the right word, because the student perhaps had made a mistake, forgotten something, not done what they were asked, or whatever it might be. Now, right. He knew, though, what I'm coming to is so that this was for the karmic benefit of the student. So sometimes right. I don't think it was Agni Yoga per se; it was karma yoga. And what I, in, a, he, in other words, it was good for the karma of that student to be there. And just occasionally, uh, it might even be unfair—not very often, but occasionally he might even be either blaming someone when somebody else was more responsible. He didn't have the time or the energy to really get into the finer points. But what I did notice, that if you had faith in him and you stood by him, he would always put it right. Maybe not in, mm. you know, down to every case like a lawyer would, but he'd balance it out in some way. Um, and yeah. I don't think he always knew why, because he was quite open about that. He knew what to do and he knew what to say. He didn't always necessarily have time to figure out why. But if you stayed with him, it would all be right for you and it would all be put right for you. Um, so sometimes yeah. it would be pure Agni Yoga. Sometimes he'd be manipulating your karma and helping you to deserve to be in his presence and to perform these missions and so on. It was in your interest, whichever way it went, as long as you hung in there with him. That's how I'd summarize it and had faith in him and love for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, that brings on a great next point. Actually, this aspect of love. What you're talking about there is his love for us and um, yes. the compassion he shared, which is you know compassion for our evolution. You know, helping us to advance. Mm. And I, I, you know, mm. the, the story that I'd like to kind of begin to close with here is about starting to really demonstrate a love for him in your journey. You know, from devotee to disciple. I think you've told me. Mm. Um, story in which, you know, for the most part, you saw pretty much eye tie in most things with the running of the society, but there was a time, I yeah. think in 92, where you, you did have a disagreement with him. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that yeah. in, this, in the context of this point. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, I was lucky, I think, uh, if that's the word, in that we did, when it came to the running of the Aetherius Society, I did see eye to eye with him. Now, that might sound obvious to some listeners, but it, wa it wasn't necessarily the case with everybody. I mean, everybody doesn't mean they didn't go along with him 100% and have faith in him and, and, and accept what he did, because for the most part, people did. But they wouldn't necessarily mm. have done it that way themselves. And very often, you know, when we were talking about numerous problems that crossed his desk, 
And he was remarkable. I mean, he'd come back from a mission like the Saturn mission, uh, spent an evening perhaps sitting, relaxing, just unpacked, and the next morning he'd be at yeah. his desk again, and it would be tri- relatively trifling matters, and he'd start again. So, you know, and I was with him both in London and Los Angeles, and many other parts of society also came across the table and we were discussing these problems and by and large what I thought we should do anyway was what he thought it wasn't just like I'll agree with him because he's a master so this made it much easier right. also made it much easier okay. I think, for anyone I'd apply this now actually in the society who's got a bit of a is a bit of a workaholic by nature I know workaholic's the wrong mm. term because it sounds like an addiction and I don't mean that <laughs> but somebody yeah. who really yeah. wants to work is very fortunate mm-hmm. on this path because that's what the path is asking them to do. And he was like that. And right. certainly, I think, I know you're like that, Darren. I'm like that. And quite a few other people are like that here. And if you're like that, then it doesn't mm-hmm. make it a, a lot easier. So, you know, in line with this, it really doesn't matter what it was about, but there was something that did come up which he didn't quite agree with we we had a it was all completely resolved later actually and it was it was relating to publicity and how we should publicize the society and um yeah it was all i mean we then wrote books together and everything was you know realized you're in the potential the last book absolutely resolved and i'm going to say of course he he would have been right i'm not saying i was right but as i explained earlier had the job of pointing things out to him and i was trying to explain to him that other things were going to be needed at that time in order to reach the public and and so forth um and you know this this i think left him feeling maybe a little bit in, insecure if that's the word about me and and he would issue he had a habit of you know issuing instructions and i won't go into what and and not threats but warnings and they were all mm-hmm. in place but i do remember going flying into america and when i got there i sort of took him in my arms virtually because we have to remember he was a shy person uh, people perhaps mm. don't. He was very confident, extremely strong, absolute leader. And don't get me wrong, if I, if he d- wanted to do something, he would do. He didn't care about what I thought. Uh, he, you know, he'd say you don't have the right to an opinion. You're not at the adept stage, or well, he didn't say that. Thing, <laughs> I heard him yeah. say, but he'd certainly say this is the way we're doing it, Lawrence, mm. and that's it. If he felt like it, so that was no right. doubt about that at all. But this was an issue that had come up. And I got there, but to reassure him, I remember just sort of taking him in my arms virtually and looking at him. And and he was talking about what other masters might think and so on. And and I basically said to him, look, whatever these such and such a master or such such a master might think, you're my master. It's what you think that counts to, to me. Uh, you know, I told him straight out, looking him in the eyes, I love you, master. And he sort of quite coyly really sort of said well kind of like you too and it was completely mm-hmm. resolved in about two minutes flat as soon as i got off the plane really um mm. but that was just you know me and, and as I, i've explained i didn't always get it right or do it in the right way and i shouldn't have caused him any anxiety i don't make no excuses for that but it was resolved very quickly because he could see exactly where i was coming from and i, I did find that having this candid, if you like, relationship was when I did say something to him that I that was nice, he kind of believed it more than ever. It had more mm. impact on him. Whereas um, you know right, people who he'd expect mm. to say the devotional thing anyway, regardless, 
Um, right. You know, that, I mean, I, for example, I remember sending him a fax. We had to send him faxes at uh, earlier stage than this uh, of appreciation after a, after a commemoration or something. And, you know, you can get into a very, it's quite easy to do. You can get to formulate words. Do you really mean it? And he phoned me up right. and says, look, anyone can write a fax, but tell me, you know, tell me. And uh, sure mm. enough, I did. Yeah, I think one one of the reasons that that story you've told is so moving for me is that it's kind of in that stage in which one goes beyond um, thinking about oneself. Because if you're frightened, you're kind of thinking about yourself and you're not really loving someone else or yes. him. Uh, yeah. But, you know, rising above that and really thinking about him, really caring about him, you know, is how we can, uh, you demonstrated that love. And I think that's a, mm. an incredibly moving story. I think um, yeah, just I a had a few things. That's, yeah, kind of, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You're the you're you're the interviewer. Sorry, you go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to um, kind of start to bring us to a close here. With just a few minutes left before we hand over right. to Nikki, um, and just you know, kind of some takeaways for people. I think because we've just talked about there about love, which is kind of that second stage of the journey that you've described. You know, it starts with with mm-hmm. being a follower, um, and you've talked about that transformation from, you know, that real devotional traditional uh, approach. And that, you know, going mm. to that stage of love and understanding what he needs in the context of what have been instructed by the cosmic masters, you know, not just about the third phase of his mission, but even to you directly to tell the truth. And that's one of the ways that mm. he needed you to serve him. I think it's, it's, a, it's a great illustration for us all about this journey that we can take um, from devotee to disciple and to ask ourselves, you know, what it really means, what we can do, what each of us can do to serve our master. And I'll quickly um, say, Darren, I also, because I, I did, yeah, I did show you something just before um, that he didn't always let me say things, and um, I was giving a lecture about him, and I, I've showed it to you just before the show, and as I was preparing yes, for, it for it in a room, um, and I was writing a line in my notes in 1997, just months before he passed on, he told me to give this lecture about him actually in in Los Angeles, which I did about him. And I was writing a line in my notes about health. And as I did, sitting at a table in a room with no nothing in the room much at all, a drop of blood fell onto the page right above the note about his health. And I was writing down, he bears karma. Mm. And the blood fell mm. there. And you saw it, didn't you? You saw the, it's 22 years later, you can still see the mark on the page where it yeah. fell. And I took it to thing, him. I mean, yeah. It's physical. Mm. Physical blood, it was red, now it's a bit brown. I took it to show him. I didn't know whether to, because it's a bit upsetting, and he said, that's exotic blood. We've still got it here in the Master's Shrine. Um, I said, well, I must tell people. I must go out and tell people you're taking karma. He admitted he was taking karma for Operation Sunbeam. He was very ill at that point. But he said, no, no, they won't understand that now. Anyway, it's in the biography now, but that's a, a note I'd end on to show that he didn't always let people know the full truth of what he was going through. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's a incredibly moving point to end on. Um, I think a great point to recommend the biography, actually, um, which you and Brian Kniep have written together, The King Who Came to Earth. Um, you said, on the back, read this book, you'll never be the same again. And well, I have to agree. Um, I have to agree. Um, if anyone's looking for that, they can get it from our website, ethereus.org, uh, and also in major ebook stores online, too. Um, the true story of his life and achievements revealed by you and Brian, um, two of his, his closest disciples. 
close disciples. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll hand over to Nikki um, and say thank you very much, Richard, for taking the time to share so much of your experience with, with us today. Thank you, Darren, very much. And thank you, Nikki. Well, <clears throat> well, thank you, Richard, very much for giving us all such an amazing insight into what can only be described as an incredible and developing journey of a disciple serving his chosen master, Dr. George King, for 40 years as Executive Secretary for Europe. And thank you, Darren, in your role as guest interviewer for brilliantly drawing out such amazing revelations from Richard. Thank you both. You have been listening to A Serious Radio Live, which is your cosmic connection, the third Tuesday of each month. As always, Aetherius.org has more information and details of the various publications and audio titles available on CD or download. You can connect with your hosts, Chrissy Blaze and Richard Lawrence, by visiting their respective websites, chrissyblaze.com and richardlawrence.co.uk. Please join us for the next Aetherius Radio Live on October the 15th on the subject, Behind the Scenes with the Biography, the website. We hope you have enjoyed listening to Aetherius Radio Live and we look forward to being with you next month. Thank you.